Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. For our show this week, we're digging back in our archives, and we're going to play a show that was originally broadcast on the 11th of April in 2016. I hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Coming in here, just here they come now. Come on in, kids, single file. Keep the line straight, that's good. Tyler, keep your hands to yourself. Right, Betty, no gum. No gum, okay, right? Just line up right along there, that's great. Oh, you guys are looking good. Glad to have you aboard. Come on, there's still room, come on in. This Bob Bro, welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the old-time radio show where we feature those shows that we actually remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers. We may not remember them all from radio. We may remember them from television, but nonetheless, we remember them. And we have a lot of fun reminiscing as we listen to them again all these many years later. And even if you're not a baby boomer, you're welcome. And I think that you'll enjoy the fair we have uh, lined up for tonight. We have an episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. We have a very funny episode of Our Miss Brooks. And we're going to finish things up on the streets of Dodge City, Kansas with an episode of Gunsmoke. So everybody gets settled in their seats. You may sit down now. And we're going to get started in just a minute. Chester, is that is that everybody? Good morning.
Well, it's been several weeks since we've done some real radio noir in the form of an Adventures of Philip Marlowe, so I'm anxious to hear what he's been up to. The episode we're going to listen to tonight was first broadcast on March the 14th in 1950 and is entitled The Vital Statistic. Now, here's a fair warning. This plot gets a little complicated. I had to listen to it twice before I really understood what was going on. So try to keep track in your mind of names of the various people. And then at the end, when he gives his explanation, you're going to have to follow it very closely. I suppose you have to do that on all these. And I don't know, maybe I was distracted the first time I heard this. But after it was all done, I thought, wait a second, who did what? How? Really, it is explained when I went through and listened to it the second time. So here's the great guy, Gerald Moore, and also listen to uh, Larry Dopkin. Lawrence Dopkin is in here as the uh, police detective, and he's good in it. And there's a few other people you might know. You can hear the uh, cast at the end of the show. Here comes the vital statistic on the adventures of Philip Marlowe. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road. And those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time a car hop knocked me down a flight of stairs. An honest woman was strangled by a green silk sash. And a simpering dandy was shot to death. All because of a run-of-the-mill accident 500 miles away. It happened like this. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Vital Statistic. Hey, boy. Give me a paper, will you? Paper, mister? Yes, sir. What do you like? Reese's comics are classified. How about some news? Star? Here you are. Thank you. Paper! Get out of my way! Hey, wait! Hey, take it easy. Drive away from here. Fast. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What is You've this? You've got to help me. I'm being followed. Oh, just a minute, sister. I think the you better The light's green. Drive, will you? Hurry, please. Okay, okay. She was streamlined from close-cropped hair, the color of a smoky sunset, to low-heeled slippers brocaded in bronze. And in between a dress that conformed as close and smooth as lacquer on a Chinese vase. I made four turns in four blocks and pulled into the curb and stopped. She stabbed a look at me with a pair of sharp, jade green eyes that said life had always been nothing but a calculated risk. Then she stepped out of the car and smiled. You were a big help, brother. Thanks. And goodbye. Uh-uh. Not just like that, baby. Come here. I don't like being left out on a limb. Now, look. You did me a favor. Okay, but we drop it right here. It's trouble. You wouldn't like it. On the contrary, it's business. Like keeping my own nose clean. I'm a private detective, but I didn't issue any invitation for you to jump into my car. A private detective? Yeah, who's chasing you, baby? The law? You can tell me out here on the street or inside over a drink. I'll take the drink. I need it. Yeah. Maybe I need you, too. This might be a break. I'm Mrs. Terry Labar, and you're, um... Marlowe, Philip Marlowe. Who are you running from, Mrs. Labar? A woman in slacks. I don't know who she is or why she's following me, but every time I look back, she's there. This is the second day. 
Yeah, sure. Say, look, why haven't you talked it over with your local policeman? Are you working for me, private detective? It all depends. All right. I'm a merchant, Chinese silks. Not a little shop for 6% profit, but wholesale quick with cash at 40%. Uh-huh. So what's the point? No police. All it takes is a rumor of police, and I'll have doors closed on me from Seattle to Mexico. Good evening. May I get you something? A martini, please. Make it two, waiter. Yes, sir. Right away. This gets us back to the woman in slacks, huh? Yeah. Here, Marlo. Fifty and fifty. Hundred dollars. I want you to locate that woman, find out who she is and why she's after me. Will you? Not without a few more facts. For instance, could she have some connection with your business? No. I have two men working with me. A strong one named Harlan Casey, who sees that my cash gets safely to where it's going. And a smart one named Joe Temple, who knows what to buy with it. She doesn't belong to either of them. Oh, you sure? Positive. Casey hates all women. Even me, I think. <laughs> and Joe Temple. Well, Joe's a wonderful guy. You hint like a woman falling in love with a fellow named Joe Temple. Care to talk about it further? Why not? Temple and Casey have been in San Francisco all week on a deal. A big deal that'll make or break us. Every cent I have is tied up in it. Oh. Well, what about you and Joe Temple? Yeah. Well, perhaps this will explain. I planned to go away this weekend, but I changed my mind because I didn't want to miss his letters. <laughs> I know it sounds funny, but it's true. Those must be some letters. They are. Like the one I got this morning. It's half business, all right. Complete account of how hard he and Casey worked for me yesterday in San Francisco. But the rest of it is to me. Personally. I don't want to sound old-fashioned, Mrs. Labar, but what about... My husband? Yeah, yeah. That was a mistake I couldn't live with. One thing I can't stand, Marlowe, is being lied to. It leaves me vindictive. I'm suing for divorce right now. Vince Labar is a human leech, as cold and spineless and parasitic as the real thing. Okay, but why would your hating your husband put a woman in slacks on your trail? I don't know. All right, Terry, I'll worry about that, too. Any idea where I can start? Just one. I pulled a switch on her yesterday, Marlowe, for about an hour... I trailed her to the corner of Wilshire and La Cienega, then lost her in traffic. There are several dancing schools around there. Is that worth anything? Maybe. What kind of car was she driving? We were both walking. She's tall and brunette, and I've seen toads with nicer eyes. Not enough. Can't guarantee anything. I'll keep my fingers crossed, Marlowe. Here, take the hundred. Oh. Do what you can and report to me at my place, 204 Beechwood Circle. Okay? Pardon, sir. Your drinks. Two martinis? Oh, thanks. Here are. Thank you, sir. To your success, private detective. To your health, silk merchant. Drink hearty. Slugging it down was no way to treat a good dry martini, but I figured it was time I was on my way. I drove out to Wilshire and La Cienega and slowed down enough to look at all four corners. There was a drugstore with a special on garbage cans, a drive-in called Scotty's, a branch of the Bank of Los Angeles, and... Uh, flying red horse over a mobile gas station. I drove on again when I spotted a pair of black slacks going into a dancing studio a half block down. It looked like a lead. But after two hours of staring at knobby knees and shorts and bulging hips and bloomers, all knocking themselves out for a mythical Klieg-lighted future, I was finally convinced that it was a dead end. Now I got back into my car and headed up into the hills for Beechwood Circle in the slim hope that Terry could give me something more to go on. Her house at 204 was low and dainty and half-hidden behind the tough, slender grace of a bamboo grove. The walk was guarded by a white marble lion of Korea, and the front door, when I finally found it, turned out to be a sliding panel in a wall of oriental lattice work. As the door slid open, I was looking down the barrel of a snub-nosed pistol held very steady in the hands of a hard-eyed brunette. <laughs> 
in a pair of black slacks. You've been looking high and low for me, haven't you, Peeper? Ever since you left that dame. I might have been. You're not the brightest character in the world, in spite of what you and your friends think. I spotted your car when she got in. It wasn't too tough to tag. Where's Terry? Sleeping off a hangover from better days. Skip the chatter. Where is she? Come on in and look. And that's no suggestion, sailor. It's an order. Move over there to the top of the stairs. Sure, sure. That's a good smart boy. You're late, you know. I got what I came for, and now I'm in a hurry. Turn around. Look, sister. Shut up! Hey! That happy landing! Ten stairs down to the basement. And with a shove reinforced by the 45, I hit all but the first three. By the time I worked all the kinks out and was back upstairs again, she was gone. I started through the house, then slowly from one room to another, turning on lights as I went, looking for what I knew was going to be a very sick client. When I got as far as the study where somebody had gone through the desk drawers with what must have been a snowplow, and I still hadn't found Terry, I got that numb feeling in my stomach. I started out a side door that opened into the patio. But then I heard a whistle from the front walk. I cut back through the house instead and waited near the door. Terry! Hey, Terry, can I come in? It's little Joe, the Frisco kid. <laughs> what happened to your weekend trip, honey? I... Who are you? What do you want? Hiya, Temple. How do you know me? Mrs. LeBar hired me today just after she canceled the weekend. She gave me a rundown. She hired you? What do you mean? I'm a private detective named Marlowe. Why would she hire you? Because she was being followed by a brunette in slack. She didn't like it, and that's all the information you're going to get, so relax. You say Terry isn't here? Isn't home? Not so far, no. Come on back here to the study, Temple. I want you to look at something. Somebody's gone through the desk in an awful hurry. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Maybe you know something about what's missing, huh? You and Mrs. LeBar were fairly close, from what I'm told? The letters. The letters are gone. Terry kept my letters in this bottom drawer. Ah. By the way, Temple, where's your sidekick, Harlan Casey? Oh, I don't know. We, we both left San Francisco yesterday. He hates to fly, so I assume he took a train. He ought to be here in L.A. now. I... Well, you don't think Casey's mixed up in this, do you? I don't know. It could be. Vince LeBar. That's who it was that got those letters. It was Vince LeBar. They were really love letters. The business part was nothing. And Labar is the dog-in-the-manger kind of guy who wants everyone to be unhappy if he that is. That fits, that fits, Temple. With a smart lawyer, your letters to Terry becomes grade-A material for a countersuit for divorce. Sure, he could make it stick and also get a fat settlement under community property laws. Now listen, here's what you've Marlo. got. Marlo, it's... it's Terry. Terry! Temple, Terry! wait! Terry! Look at her, Marlo. Look at her! Helen Matthews, homicide details. Marlo Matthews, there's a dead one out here. A woman got a pencil? Always. Go ahead, Marlo. I'm at 204 Beechwood Circle. The woman was a client. Yeah, go on. She was strangled with a green silk sash from my loungy pajamas, Matthew, sometime within the last, uh, I'd say, hour. Yeah. Her name was Terry Labar. Hey, wait, wait, wait. Terry I... Labar. Wait a minute, Marlo. Listen, we got a teletype here from a sheriff in Empire, Oregon, come in five minutes ago. So? Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Says some guy named Jess Freeman from L.A. was killed there this morning in a traffic accident. Was loaded with big dough, but doesn't look the type. And the only other identification on him was a business card from one Terry Labar. Yeah, 
You got a helpful answer for that? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, Temple, do you know anything about a man named Jess Freeman? He was killed in Oregon today in a traffic accident and had one of Terry's cards on him. Freeman? Yeah. No, no, I don't remember him. No dice, Matthews. Who are you talking to? Uh, Joe Temple, one of Terry Labar's associates. He's here. Never heard of Jess Freeman? Yeah. Okay, Mullum. Uh-huh. No, they sent his prints to Washington. A tattoo says he was in the Navy once. They'll pin him down. Now, uh, about out there, any idea who killed him? Yeah. Maybe a brunette in slacks. I think I know where to find her. Well, it's dandy. Sit on it till we get there, Mullum. I'll be right out. Uh, wait a minute, Lieutenant. What? Look, right now it's only a hunch, but if I move fast and quiet, I might be able to develop it into something worthwhile, okay? Uh, okay, but keep in touch, Phil. Yeah, yeah. I still can't believe it about Terry Marlowe. Now, look, look. Why don't you just go home and take it easy? I'll tell Lieutenant Matthews where he can find you, huh? Thanks. Uh, 1310 Marlboro Drive. Right. Now, tell me, you know where Vince LeBar lives? Yeah, yeah. The Laverne Apartments on Rossmore. Uh He's got a suite on the top floor, 7A. 7A. And uh, if it's any help, he drives a new green Nash sedan. But I thought you said that it was that brunette I did, I did. And if Vince LeBar can't lead me to the lady in long pants, I'll eat my shirt. What's more, Matthews will see to it personally. Yes, what do you want? Some quiet conversation with Vince Labar. I'm Philip Marlowe, private detective. Oh, how exciting. Had I known you were coming out of baked the cake. Oh, you're breaking me up. I was hired by your wife tonight. Get out your of wife here. is dead, Labar. She was murdered. Dead? Terry murdered? Yeah. Now, if you don't mind, I'll come in, huh? She was killed because of a packet of letters, Labar. Oh, no. Kind that are a cinch to cause a big stir in anybody's divorce court. Stir big enough to swing a countersuit in your favor. I don't know what you're talking letters, about. Letters, letters, letters. Joe Temple's letters to Terry, the ones you arranged to have stolen tonight. Oh, you must be crazy. Her death wasn't part of the plan, Labar. That was one of those bum deals. A robbery that got out of hand wound up as a murder. Oh, no, wait. Now, where is she, Labar? Who's the brunette in slacks, and where do I find her? You get out of here, or I'll have the police Oh, help you. shut up. I... Not only steal letters, but ashtrays too, huh? Like this coy little number here, a doghouse. Scotty's drive-in, Wilshire and La Cienega. Okay, Labar, Stand that's all. still. Oh, now a gun, huh? <laughs> they say you're yellow, Labar, but you're not. You're just stupid. There's a terrace outside those doors, Marlowe. Those with the iron grill. Go on out there. Go on. I don't think Terry's dead, and I don't think she hired you. I think you're working for that lousy louse Joe Temple, and if so, he'll need a battalion of private detectives before I'm through. You're through right now, LeBoy. You're too dumb to see it. Go on. Clear over to the rail. Keep your back to me. It's seven floors down, Marlow, to a concrete driveway. Just in case you get jumpy. Labar and the courage caliber 32 he held in his right hand made it out of the apartment and on the run for the elevator. I kicked through the plate glass door and I spent the next two minutes alternately swearing, straining, and nicking myself while I played contortionist in and out of the fancy snake grill work on my wrought iron cage until finally I reached the inside handle and I was free out and over to the telephone in a big hurry because for my money the icing on Labar's voice left Joe Temple someplace on the short side what the life insurance people call good risk. Hello? Marlowe Temple, listen hard. Your life's in danger. What? Labar, you had him tagged from the first. He's after those letters, all right. But what about the girl in slacks? Well, I think she might have a connection with a drive-in on Wilshire and La Cienega, a place called Scotty's Inn. I'm going to check it. 
Now tell me, any word from Terry's muscle man yet? Harlan Casey? Yeah. No, nothing, Marlowe. But look, can I meet you and talk no, to you? No, no, Vince Labar had a gun and a short temper when he left here. I'll make us work any easier. Just stay away from open windows, Temple. I'll call you. Scotty's Inn was eating on the run in the finest California tradition. A mammoth circle of steel under glass painted a dazzling yellow and blue, surrounded by a half a dozen cars containing teenaged couples with smudged lipstick and the giggles. The second after I pulled in and parked, something in slacks with false eyelashes, a waist you could span with a handcuff, and a fixed front-line chorus girl's smile flipped the card marked Ginger against my windshield. Handed me a menu that still had the froth from an earlier customer's milkshake in one corner. Well, it be, mister. Just coffee, Ginger. Cream? Uh-uh, information. Oh, it's you again. Huh? Look, baby, what I told you on the phone ten minutes ago still goes, huh? About what? About Rose Facetta, the girl you described. Long black hair, a nice shape, you're infatuated, but you don't know the name and address. So it was nice. I gave the name, told you to look the address up in the phone book, period. Don't be so lazy, baby. Wait a minute, Ginger. I didn't call you before, but that dime cup of coffee will bring you a ten-buck tip if you tell me who did. Hey, you want the guy who called. I don't know any names, but you're not him. Mm. He didn't talk up like you do. But what's all the fuss, baby? Rose Facetta's got a guy. She's spoken for. Besides, a handsome fellow sweetheart, like you should... Sweetheart, hmm? this is business, strictly, believe me. Oh. What's the address? Come on. 2428 Havenhurst Drive, bottom floor. Thanks. Here. Here's a ten I promised no, you. No. Never mind. Hmm? The name was free to him, so why should I charge you? Besides... Beside what? I like the way you said sweetheart. <laughs> Come on back sometime, will you, baby, when you want more than coffee? Okay. When I want more than coffee and less than murder, I will. Stay out of it, Ginger. It was definite double talk, but the effect was what I wanted. Ginger with mouth wide open and staring after me like my ears were on backwards. That way, she might be scared out of making a simple curiosity spike telephone call to the popular Rose Facetta would trumpet my arrival loud, clear, and prematurely. Ten minutes later, I was parked away from number 2824, Havenhurst. As I got out of my car and started toward the place, I found Vince Labar's green sedan on the opposite side of the street and carefully tucked into the shadows of a pair of long-haired pepper trees. It was a good time for me to be careful. So when I knocked on the front door, which showed yellow light at the threshold and was the starting point for something not too close to music, I did it with the butt end of my 38. Ziggy, friend of Ginger's. She asked me to deliver you a message, Rose. Oh, all right. What's the message, friend? Why, you lousy... Don't try it, sunshine. There's no law against shooting ladies who knock you downstairs. Now, back off. Come on, move, but not too far. The moment I want you in between me and Vince Labar. Who? Look, Angel, it's all real plain. Those suitcases behind you there are packed. His car's outside. He's after the letters. Oh, no. Ha-ha! <laughs> there goes Vince now, Buster. Well, Peeper, your opener stinks. Get inside fast. Sure, sure. Any place in particular, sailor? That chair near the desk. Keep your hands in your lap. Okay. If it'll please you, Mr. Detective, I'll be very glad to. After all, you're my guest, and I should be nice to you. Now we talk like a little lady, huh, Rose? Vince Labar picked up the letters from you as scheduled, and you're getting ready to run because you killed Terry, and you'd rather not be around for the question and answer period, right? I didn't kill her. I, I just knocked her down. No. You didn't kill her. You just slowed down her breathing somewhat with a pajama sash. You're wrong, copper. I Skip only... it. Doesn't add any other way. Go on, answer it. Who is it? 
Mr. Shirley, what's going on in there, Mr. Setter? Fine, Lord. Now, the jerk who lives in the top half of this place, along with a few thousand Mr. French Mr. if you don't open this door, I'm going to call the police. I distinctly heard a noise, and I... Come on in, Mr. Shirley. Well, what... Well, what's going on in here? Who are you? Never mind that. Now, get on the phone. Call the police. Huh? Oh. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, certainly. Operator, oh, operator, I want the police. 2824 Haven. Look, Hero, yes. you're a little mixed up about some things. Yeah, and you're just the kid to straighten me out. His letters you've got at Terry's place were written by Joe Temple. Was your boyfriend Vince heading for Temple when he left here? I can't. Try hard, sister. Oh. All right, all right. Maybe he was. Now leave me alone. Not quite. Hey, you, Mr. Shirley. Oh, yes? In that desk next to you, there's a gun. Keep it on until the law arrives. Oh. Ladies wanted for murder. Well, yes, but what if she should... Yeah, then shoot, Shirley, fast. Because if you don't, she'll kill you. Tell the cops I'll fill in the blanks later. Oh, now, wait, why must you leave? Why don't we both watch? Because a guy named Joe Temple needs my help a lot more than you do. The home address Temple had given me turned out to be lights in a quiet house on a quiet street named Marlboro. I was there out of my car and running for the front door when they came. Chucked my gun out of the holster, got close into the building, and moved up until I was on a line with a pair of half-open patio doors. And I saw something I hadn't expected. On the floor that was littered with a broken lamp, pieces of vase, and overturned furniture was Vince Labar, doubled up, dead. And standing over him, his face the color of soft cement, a 32 dangling in his limp right hand was Joe Temple. When he saw me, he tried to talk, but the words jammed in his throat. Oh, oh. When I stepped into the room, he began to tremble. Oh, oh, I, I shot him. I couldn't help it. He was gonna... Sit down, Temple. Get a hold of yourself. You got any brandy around? Over on that table near the phone. No. He was out of his mind, Marlowe. An absolute maniac. He said he was gonna kill me. So you lunged for him. There was a fight and you came up with a gun, huh? Yeah. And when he started for me again, I, I pulled the trigger. And then I did it again. And a third time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Drink this. He brought the letters back, Marlowe. They're inside on the floor where he threw them. He said they didn't mean anything anymore. That he and that girl in the slacks had taken care of Terry. Take it easy, Temple, easy. He seemed to go crazy. He said I was a wife stealer, the cause of his trouble, and that I deserved death. Well, that's when I jumped at him. It was terrible, Marlowe. Yeah. Well, between the two of us, we've just about got all the answers, which is usually a good time to call the police, huh? What do you mean, just about got all the answers, Marlowe? What else is there? Jess Freeman. The guy Lieutenant Matthews told us about when we were over at Terry's place, remember? Oh, yes, that traffic crash in Empire, Oregon. But why should that figure in this, Marlowe? It shouldn't, but uh, I think it does. Homicide, Detective Lieutenant Matthews speaking. Marlowe Matthews, yeah. another dead one on the Terry Labar case. Oh, no. Yeah, Vince Labar, her husband, he was shot. Uh, who did it, Marlowe, do you know? Yeah, a guy named Joe Temple. It was self-defense. We're coming in, Matthews. I'll take that gun, Temple. You get the letters, let's go. When we got into my car and started downtown, Temple was more relaxed. And he talked easily until we passed Vince Labar's sparkling green sedan parked a block away. Once again, close into the shadows, and once again, empty. Real empty. The sight of it closed him up tight for the rest of the trip. When we walked into police headquarters and through the quarter of a mile of glossy corridor leading to the door marked homicide, he didn't open up any. 
But it didn't matter, really, because it's police rule never to talk to two men about the same thing at the same time. And I was first. Matthew said hello without shaking hands, waved me into an uncomfortable seat, and then lit his pipe while I brought him up to date. Then it was his turn. So Rose Facetta killed Terry LaBar so that she could get the letters Joe Temple had written, huh? Mm-hmm. Did this so that her boyfriend, Vince LaBar, could raise a lot of fuss in divorce court with the letters, file a countersuit, that kind of stuff? That's the whole deal. Yeah, with Temple making it a doubleheader by shooting Vince when Vince came to kill him. That's it, Matthews. Yeah. If you believe Temple. Huh? And if Temple hadn't slipped. All right, now what are you getting at, Phil? That when I was on the phone with you earlier at night, you asked me if Temple or I knew anything about a Jess Freeman who was killed in a traffic accident in Empire, Oregon? Right, right, but you didn't. No, no. Nor did I mention the town of Empire to Temple. Ooh. Yet a half hour ago, just before I called you, Temple came up with that name. Oh, then Molly, you... Oh. Hold my calls, Mooney. Molly, you mean I mean tell... that Joe Temple killed Terry Labar. Rose just knocked her out and got the letters. Temple strangled her while she was still unconscious. Yeah, but why? Because a guy identified as Jess Freeman got himself killed in a traffic accident. So? A guy who I think was actually Holland Casey, Terry's two-fisted assistant, who together with Joe Temple was crossing the boss lady. Yeah, but Marlo, And that left you... Temple in a very hot spot. To save himself, he had a kill. Can you prove all this, Marlowe? No. Not a word of it. It's conjecture. But conjecture that fits, Matthews. Yeah. When Temple found Terry unconscious in the garden, that was his chance. He took now it. Now, look, Phil. Phil, you're guessing at night. Sure, sure I'm guessing. But not in the dark. I know how these guys think and act. I've done too many cases not to know. Now, listen for a minute, will you, Matthews? Phil, I got will you listen? Facts? All right, okay. Now, look. Temple had to get those letters back, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The last one in particular, because in the last one, this is the way it's got to figure. He had lied to Terry about being in San Francisco with Casey yesterday. When actually Casey was in Empire, Oregon. Yeah, when Casey was killed up there, the fact was bound to come out. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a good reason. Matthews, will you let me finish, please? All right, finish. Temple knew Terry would find out. He knew that she couldn't stand a liar and a partner who'd double-cross her. Temple knew that she'd get him and ruin him if it took her the rest of her life. So he came back to get the letter before she could read it, but she hadn't left town as planned, huh? Ironically enough, because she didn't want to miss one of his letters. Yeah, but look, I'm a policeman, Phil. I gotta have facts. All right, all right, you're the policeman. You got labs and technicians. You'll get the facts. And I'll bet you it figures just like I say. Yeah, okay, Phil, okay. And another thing, Matthews. What? When you talk to Temple, who's holding the packet of letters now like a real good boy... Yeah. ...you'll find the last one missing. It'll be in his pocket. I'll bet you on that. Well, that ought to do it, Lieutenant. Yeah, with one exception, Phil. Huh? How did Temple maneuver all this? Getting the letters from Rose Facetta, then setting up that self-defense deal. I don't know. But my guess is that Vince got the letters from Rose just before I arrived at her place. But when he got into his car... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Temple was waiting, slugged him, drove back to his own house, dropped the body in the living room, shot him when he heard you coming? Something like that, Matthews. Uh -huh, uh -huh. See if you can't get it out that way. Yeah, well, don't huh? no worry, Phil. If it's true, we'll get it out. It'll be true. Oh, uh, now would you ask Mr. Temple to come in, please, Mr. Mullo? I'll be glad to, Lieutenant. Uh... Say, Temple, Lieutenant, would like to see you. All right, Marlowe. I, I think I can speak coherently now. Good, good. They like to get the facts straight in there. Go ahead. Yes, of course. Good night, Marlowe, and thanks for your help. Oh, good evening, Mr. Temple. Sit down and start talking. I got into my car, the new day was starting to push the black out of the sky. And the early morning air smelled fresh and 
Yeah, the whole night had been confused and complicated. But I knew that by the time Matthews had finished with Temple, there'd be no questions left unanswered. That'd be great, wouldn't it? If everything could be that way. No questions left unanswered. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Gerald Moore may currently be seen starring in Republic's The Blonde Bandit. Featured in the cast were Charlotte Lawrence, Elliot Reed, Dora Singleton, Georgia Ellis, Bill Lally, and Hugh Thomas. Detective Lieutenant Matthews is played by Larry Dobkin. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time a bride-to-be, a corpse in a plush bungalow, and a southern drawl behind a gun all had one thing in common. They moved through the same deep shadow. Remember, you'll find George Burns and Gracie Allen and their good friend Bill Goodwin here on most of these same CBS stations every Wednesday night in the half hour following the Bing Crosby Show. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now stay tuned for Pursuit, which follows immediately. This is CBS, where Burns and Allen are heard every Wednesday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The name of that episode was The Vital Statistic on the Adventures of Philip Marlowe, originally broadcast back in March of 1950. And Gerald Moore played in that one, and he was making movies at the time, as you heard. He had a film coming out for Republic Pictures, which was really famous for their B-movies. Public. They made very few movies in color. Republic Pictures. Moore made a number of movies for them. He was always considered sort of a Humphrey Bogart lookalike. Let me see here. A couple program notes. He talked about the corner of Wilshire and La Cienega and described it as kind of a typical businessy corner with a drive-in restaurant on one corner and I think a drugstore and a gas station, that sort of thing. Well, La Cienega Boulevard. This is in Beverly Hills, folks. From Wilshire up to San Vicente has always been known as Restaurant Row with some very, very trendy, pricey restaurants lining both sides of the street. So I guess it was a little different in 1950. Also, did you get reference to the Nash? One of the fellows in there was driving a Nash. Do you remember the Nash? There was Nash and there was Rambler. Oh, yeah. Nash was always considered a upscale automobile, and later when Rambler was introduced, it was like the economy line to the Nash. We had an old Nash. Was it a Nash or a Ram? I think it was a Nash. With an, My dad, one of his customers gave it to him for whatever reason, but I remember it had the old stick shift, and I'm not talking about on the floor. It was the standard shift that was on the steering column. You would go up for first and down for second, and then back 
and up for third and back and down for fourth. I forget where reverse was. Of course, a lot of cars were like that then. But it was a big, heavy car. I remember that. And then later, the Rambler became more of a a lower price point car to the Nash. But they have not been around since, I think, sometime in the 60s. I remember in high school, we had an attendance investigator, like our truant officer, that used to drive around in a little two-seat Nash Metropolitan. I remember he had to keep the hood closed with a padlock for fear somebody would probably put a bomb in there or something. I don't know. He was the guy that used to walk in and bust the guys in the bathroom that were smoking. Of course, it was hard to tell who was doing what because bathrooms back then were so smoky you couldn't see from one side of the room to the other when you walked in the bathroom. But I guess you had to be caught with an actual cigarette in your hand before uh, he could actually tag you. And then it was an automatic suspension. I don't remember if it was for one day or two days or whatever it was. But Crazy times. Isn't it nice that kids aren't smoking nearly as much as they did back then in the 60s? More Philip Marlowe coming up in the weeks ahead. Chester advises me we have a phone caller. So let's uh, let's go to the phones and see who, who's calling us. Hi, this is Bob on Boomer Boulevard. Who am I talking to, please? Yeah, Bob. This is this is Grover Cordes. <laughs> Grover Cordes, Bob. Grover Corners? You wouldn't happen to be calling from New Hampshire, would you? No, I'm I'm up in Troy, Michigan. Why? Oh, I was just wondering. Uh, anyway, nice to have you calling, Grover. How can I help you? Bob, I just been in such a down mood, man. I am just so. Oh, all I can do is cry. I I just been really upset. I was wondering if if you could play a couple really sad songs. You want me to play sad songs, even though you're depressed and upset? Why? Because that's the only thing that makes me feel better when I feel like is is a sad song. It really picks me up and makes me feel feel better. Can you play it, please? Okay. Jester says he's got a whole bunch of <laughs> sad country songs. So uh, can maybe we'll play a couple of them, and uh, hopefully it will make you feel better, Grover. Thank you, Bob. I should appreciate it. Thanks so much. Okay, Grover, and uh, I wish you the very best up there in Troy, Michigan, and you just stay tuned, and we'll play some sad songs to make Grover Corners in Troy, Michigan. Feel better. Her telephone rang about a quarter to nine. She heard his voice on the other end of the line. She wondered what was wrong this time. She never knew what his calls might bring. With a cowboy like him, it could be anything And she always expected the worst in the back of her mind He said it's cold out here and I'm all alone Didn't make the short go again And I'm coming home I know I've been away too long Never got a chance to write a call 
And I know this rodeo has been hard on us all But I'll be home soon And honey, is there something wrong? She said, don't bother coming home By the time you get here, I'll be long gone There's somebody new and he sure ain't no rodeo man Said, I'm sorry it's come down to this There's so much about you that I'm gonna miss But it's alright baby If I hurry I can still make Cheyenne Gotta go now baby If I hurry I can still make Cheyenne that phone dangling off the hook then slowly turned around and gave it one last look then he just walked away he aimed his truck toward that Wyoming line with a little luck he could still get there in time and in that shy and wind still hear her say She said don't bother coming home By the time you get here I'll be long gone There's somebody new and he sure ain't no rodeo man He said I'm sorry it's come down to this there's so much about you that I'm gonna miss But it's alright baby, if I hurry I can still make Cheyenne Gotta go now baby, if I hurry I can still make Cheyenne Never knew what his calls might bring With a cowboy like him, it could be anything And she always expected the worst in the back of her mind Three and a half years after their marriage, Hank and Audrey separated and divorced for the first time. Hear that lonesome whippoorwill He sounds too When time 
goes crawling back. That moon just went behind the clouds to hide its face and are a couple of sad songs. I think uh, I need a little pick-me-up. I think we need a little comedy corner. Something familiar. Something familiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with clowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Ah! Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, coming tonight. <laughs> well, it's time to lighten things up around here a little bit. Those songs were starting to get to me. We have on our Comedy Corner tonight an episode of Our Miss Brooks from October of 1950. This is one of the classic stories on on Our Miss Brooks where circumstances get twisted around to make things look like they aren't really. And usually caught right in the crossfire is Osgood Conklin, principal of Madison High School. And this time... Everyone thinks perhaps Mr. Conklin is the bookie, and that's the name of the episode. So here we go to Madison High School and Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. It's time.
time once again for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks under the direction of Al Lewis. Well, running a high school is usually a difficult task. But Osgood Conklin, principal of Madison High, where Our Miss Brooks teaches English, somehow manages to make it seem even harder. Last week, for instance, it was his anti-gambling crusade. Friday morning at breakfast, I discussed the situation with my landlady. But I didn't think gambling was such a big problem at Madison, Connie. It isn't, Mrs. Davis. But Mr. Stone, head of the Board of Education, is cooperating with the DA's office in a countywide drive against gambling. Naturally, Mr. Conklin hopped on the bandwagon. He's instituted some pretty sweeping reforms in our school. Like what, Connie? Like taking the gum machine out of the cafeteria. <laughs> Plus which he deputized me to stamp out penny matching. Did you encounter any in your class, Connie? Well, there were a couple of kids matching pennies in the coat closet during a study period, but it only went on for about ten minutes. Ten minutes? Didn't you stop them, Connie? Oh, of course I stopped them immediately. May I never get my 55 cents back if I didn't. <laughs> You're not the only teacher at Madison. Why didn't you get Mr. Boynton to help you out? I did. The next two times I investigated that coat closet, I took Mr. Boynton with me. And did you find anyone? Gee, I forgot to look. <laughs> well, if you'll excuse me now, Mrs. Davis, I'd better get ready for school. Walter Denton's picking me up in a few minutes. All right, dear. Oh, before you go, would you do me a favor, Connie? Take this $5 and pay my phone bill this afternoon. I'd send it in, but frankly, I'm afraid it's just about overdue. Me and that absent mind of mine. You are quite a pair. <laughs> Don't worry about it, Mrs. Davis. I'll take it in to the company today. Mr. Conklin was in the same predicament a couple of weeks ago. He asked me to attend to the school phone bill for him. But I thought the Board of Education took care of school bills. They do, but this one was an emergency. It seems the auditor in charge of the funds took an unexpected vacation. An unexpected vacation. As the head of the board put it, he went south with the money. <laughs> anyway, Mr. Conklin gave me the $30, and I paid it the very first thing I... That is, I think it was the very first thing. Connie, you did pay that bill, didn't you? Oh, now I remember. I gave it to Walter Denton to pay. For a minute there, I was worried. <laughs> You gave the school phone bill to Walter Denton to pay, and now you're not worried? No. I can always start looking for another job. <laughs> Would you mind decreasing the speed of this rocket ship just a little, Walter? For you, fair one, I'll make the old chariot tiptoe. <laughs> so jittery on this most beautiful of all possible days? Because, oh fast one, on this most beautiful of all possible days, I've just been stricken with the most horrible of all possible thoughts. Briefly, the school phone bill I gave you two weeks ago. School phone bill. School phone bill. Oh, no, don't tell me you forgot it. School phone bill. Oh, now I remember. Oh, wasn't that the bill that was overdue when Mr. Conklin asked you to pay it for him at once? Yes, that's the one. And you had something important to do downtown and told me to take care of it immediately? Exactly. Oh, well, it's a relief to know that's attended to. I knew you wouldn't let me down, Walter. Of course I wouldn't let you down. I told him to pay it at once when I turned it over to Stretch Snodgrass. <laughs> Stretch Snodgrass? 
Listen, Walter, I know Stretch is a great athlete and a good friend of yours, but he's a bird brain. You're just worrying in advance, Miss Brooks. I'm sure he took care of it. Now, look, there's Stretch going into school now. We'll ask him about it. Hey, Stretch, wait up a minute. Okay. Hi, Walter. Hello, Miss Brooks. Stretch, I'd like to ask you a question. Fire away. Don't think it's not a temptation. <laughs> Do you recall the phone bill Walter gave you to pay two weeks ago? Remember, Stretch? I told you it was urgent. Urgent? Oh, oh, yeah. Wasn't that the phone bill Mr. Conklin gave Miss Brooks to pay in a hurry? That's right. It was overdue, and I gave it to Walter and told him to pay it without delay. Yeah, and I had something very important to do myself that day, so I gave it to you and I told you to take care of it immediately. Sure, sure. I remember it all now. Then you took care of it. Absolutely. When I handed that bill to my sister, I told her to pay it at once. <laughs> to whom it may concern. Copy this phone bill and send it along with ten cents to five of your friends, and if no one breaks the chain... <laughs> Who knows, someday you may be the lucky recipient of a very low number at Alcatraz. Well, I've straightened out your office for you, Daddy. Thank you, Harriet. I'm certainly glad the telephone company gave you a new number. So am I. The past few days have been quite an ordeal, I can tell you. I still don't know how those telephone people could give a disc jockey the same number as mine. It was just a mistake, Daddy. I'm sure it won't happen again. It better not. Those ridiculous song requests had me frantic. Imagine I get down to my office, haven't even say good morning to a soul, and ten people call up and say good night, Irene. <laughs> well, it's all over, and you have a brand new number. Well, not a minute too soon. Mr. Stone is coming over to discuss our anti-gambling campaign this afternoon. I still don't understand why the board is so interested in the district attorney's gambling crusade. It's very simple, my dear. They're merely cooperating with all local agencies to run down the head of a big gambling syndicate purported to be operating in this immediate vicinity. Actually, the police haven't the faintest idea of the man's identity. They don't know anything about him at all? Just that he's referred to as the big boy. <laughs> the big boy? Well, that's some clue, isn't it? Yes, yes, at least they won't go around looking for a girl. <laughs> now, Harriet, if you'll excuse me, I have many... Oh, I'll get it. Hello? Hello, this is Dutch. Give me 200 across the board on Harbor Song and a Toyd, huh? <laughs> uh, what? What's that? What number do you want? Main 5463. Let's see. Yes, this is Main 5463, but I'm Well, sure... then give me 200 across on Harbor Song and a Toyd. Harbor song? You must have the wrong number. Oh, I'm... please, you don't have to be so cagey. We got protection now. Hey, this is Ben a bookie, isn't it? No, this is Osgood the principal. <laughs> I mean, this is... there must be some mistake. Look, the big boy gave us this number to call for track conditions, latest odds, and laying off bets. And the big boy don't make no mistakes. The big boy? Yeah. Now use your head and play ball. What? Oh, we'll use your head and play ball. <laughs> Two hundred across on Harbor Song, huh? Goodbye. What's going on, Daddy? Harry, this is terrible. I should have quit while I was a disc jockey. <laughs> By some fiendish mistake, the telephone company has given me the same number as a bookmaker. 
Now, calm down, well, Daddy. All you have to do is call the company and ask them to change it again. But it took three days to change it last time, and Mr. Stone is coming here this afternoon. There's only one way out. Harriet, you've got to rush to the phone company and get a repairman to disconnect this phone immediately. All right, Daddy, but I wish you'd relax. <laughs> There's really nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about, she says. What if Harbor Song wins? <laughs> Gosh, Miss Brooks, I thought you'd never come out in the hall. It couldn't be helped, Stretch. My contract here calls for me to teach a little English every day. I'm sorry. Oh, don't be sorry. Most of them kids of yours need to be learned plenty. <laughs> well, I just want to tell you I checked up on that phone bill for you. You see... I don't want anybody to go around incinerating that I'm undependable. I don't blame you. That kind of incinerating would burn me up, too. <laughs> what did you find out about the bill? Well, luckily, my sister realized how important it was. Oh, wonderful. Then she took care of it. I'll say she did. She gave it to my mother to pay. Now your worries are really over. My mother is just as dependable as I am. That's no way for a child to talk about his parents. Miss <laughs> Brooks, we're cooked. That phone bill couldn't have been paid. The telephone man is here to disconnect the phone. What? Where is he, Walter? He's right down the hall. He just asked me how to find Mr. Conklin's office, but I stalled him off. I gave him directions to another place entirely. But that's only a temporary stay. Tell me where you directed him and I'll go find him. Where I directed him, you can't go. <laughs> Miss Brooks, he's coming back now. Uh, pardon me, ma'am, uh, but uh, could you tell me how to get to Mr. Conklin's office? Mr. Conklin's office? Who's Mr. Conklin? Well, I don't know, but my orders read, uh, disconnect phone in Mr. Osgood Conklin's office. Oh, that Mr. Conklin. You must have been carrying those orders around for quite a while, young man. What do you mean? He died ten years ago. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that. What about his office? His office? Oh, that's been converted into a student coat closet. Coat closet? Then why did this uh, kid direct me to... Everybody makes mistakes. <laughs> the phone company must have made a mistake in your instructions. You'd better go back and tell them about it. Okay. Uh, well, that happens once in a while. But I still can't get over this kid sending me on such a wild goose chase. Me either. Seems like a very strange place to be looking for a wild goose. Well, even after the repairman left, I was still jittery for fear he'd come back and reveal the truth about my negligence to Mr. Conklin. It afforded some relief, however, to sit in the cafeteria at lunchtime and pour my baleful story into the handsome ears of Mr. Boynton. Well, now, now, let's see if I've got this straight, Miss Brooks. Two weeks ago, Mr. Conklin gave you the school phone bill, told you it was overdue and must be paid at once. You gave it to Walter Denton. Walter Denton gave it to Stretch Snodgrass. Stretch Snodgrass gave it to his sister. And the green grass grew all around. All around. <laughs> it's no use talking, Mr. Boynton. I'm probably in big trouble. Supposing that repairman comes back again to disconnect the phone. Well, isn't there some way to pay the bill before that happens? How? The $30 Mr. Conklin gave me, I gave to Walter with the bill, and he gave it to... Well, we've been all through that. Temporarily, we've got to assume it's gone. And the point is, where am I going to get another $30? Well, perhaps some other member of the faculty might help. That's what friends are for, to help one another. Now, I consider myself a friend of yours, Miss Brooks, and... Well, I want you to know I'm prepared to assist you in this matter. You mean I can count on you for... Two dollars. 
I- I'll canvass the rest of the faculty for the remainder. I know they'll come through for you. You think so, Mr. Boynton? Oh, take my word for it. They'll help you to a man. Right now, I'd rather they just help me to some money. <laughs> well, if you'll excuse me, Miss Brooks, I'll go see a few of them. Pardon me, Mr. Boynton. And Miss Brooks, he's back. The telephone man is back. No, where is he, Walter? Well, Stretch and I caught him as he was entering the building, right outside Mr. Conklin's office. You didn't let him get into Mr. Conklin's office. Tell me that you thought of a way to stall him again. Well, I didn't, but Stretch thought of a wonderful way. How? He's sitting on his chest. <laughs> I brought you a sandwich. I figured you'd be too upset to eat in the cafeteria today. Oh, you're right, Harriet. Why doesn't that confounded telephone man get here? If Mr. Stone arrives before this phone is disconnected, I... But I don't understand, Daddy. The phone company said they sent a man over much earlier today. I know all about that. But when I called them to send him back, they claimed I died ten years ago. (laughs) But that's ridiculous. Thank you, my dear. (laughs) However, if that fellow doesn't come back, I don't want to... I've got an idea. Why don't you just pull the wire out yourself? What? Me commit a malicious mischief against the telephone company's property? You forget, Harriet, your father is the principal of a great high school. And a high school principal does not resort to such measures, no matter what the emergency. But it might be the only way out. Stop goading me, Harriet. (laughs) I'm just not physically equipped to try pulling that telephone wire out of the wall. Again. Oh, there you are, Stretch. Walter told me what happened. It was the only way, Miss Brooks. I had to do it. I suppose so, but you were taking an awful chance right outside the principal's office, too. It couldn't be helped. I guess not. Now get off the man's chest, Stretch. Yes, (sighs) ma'am. This is extremely decent of you. Well, you see, sir, Stretch here probably thought you were a prowler on account of that black bag you're carrying. That's about it, isn't it, Stretch? About? Well, I don't know why all this is going on, but right after you told me Mr. Conklin was dead, the telephone company told me he was alive. Well, everyone's entitled to his opinion. (laughs) Oh, you must have wanted Mr. Conklin Jr. It's Mr. Conklin Sr. who passed on. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that's cleared up. Now, where's Junior's office? I've got to uh, take care of his phone. Phone? You mean you've come to reconnect it? No, I've come to disconnect it. Oh, what a shame. The company sent somebody over to do that an hour ago. Well, you've certainly bagged your quota of wild geese today, haven't you? (laughs) Well, I don't mind telling you it's been a discouraging experience. Well, I'll go back and check in again. This is what I get for not listening to my mother. She said that uh, she wanted me to take up the timpanies. Goodbye for now. You know, I'm going to miss him. Miss Brooks, who was that man who just left the building? Man, Mr. Conklin? Uh, Yes, yes, the man with the brown bag. There was no man, Mr. Conklin. And it was a black bag. (laughs) Thank you, Snodgrass. (laughs) Yes, sir. Uh, step into my office, please, Miss Brooks. Yes, sir. Now, about that man, the one with the black and brown bag. Was he by any chance the telephone repair man I've been expecting? Oh, were you expecting a telephone repair man? Uh, yes, yes, Miss Brooks. I've gotten someone else's telephone number by mistake. A mistake which could take three days to rectify, whereas it only takes ten minutes to disconnect the phone from the wall. Oh, is that 
what he was here for. Precisely. And now may I ask why you so obviously dismissed him? Well, in a few ill-chosen words, Mr. Conklin, I didn't pay the phone bill when you gave me the money two weeks ago, and I thought the repairman was here to disconnect your phone because of my negligence, and I'd like to remain on the premises just long enough to say goodbye to some of my friends. I thank you. (laughs) I never heard such gibberish in all my born days. I've got more serious worries than a delinquent phone bill on my mind, Miss Brooks. You mean it's all right, Mr. Conklin? No, it's not all right, but I'll take that up later. Whatever you do, don't mention your omission to Mr. Stone when he gets here. Mr. Stone? You've got to help me, Miss Brooks. Mr. Stone will be here at any moment to discuss my gambling campaign. However, some very strange phone calls are liable to interrupt my conference. That's why I want you to sit in on this meeting. Me? But, Mr. Conklin, I'll I say that you're taking notes on our discussion. Your main function, however, is to answer the phone. Oh, that's him. But I don't understand, Mr. Conklin. What kind of phone There's calls no have been coming? There's no time for explanations now. Be right there, Mr. Stone. Just act perfectly casual, no matter what you hear when you pick up that receiver. And remember, don't repeat a word of it. Well, Mr. Stone, come in, come in. Thank you, Osgood. Uh, Miss Brooks here is going to take some notes on our anti-gambling discussion. Uh, that is, if you have no objection. Not at all. Nice to see you again, Miss Brooks. You seem to be in the pink. Want to bet? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's nice to see you again, too, Mr. Stone. Uh, uh, sit down, Mr. Stone. Uh, here's a comfortable chair. Miss Brooks, you sit down by that desk with the phone on it. Yes, sir. Well, what's the news from the district attorney's office, Mr. Stone? They haven't made too much progress, Osgood. It's rather a difficult task in view of the fact they don't know just who the big boy is. And two, we can't seem to find out where his syndicate headquarters are located. But they do think it's in this area. Definitely. Oh, good, good. Then it's just a question of time before the bell rings for his final round. (laughs) Did you get that, please, Miss Brooks? Yes, sir. Hello? This is Dutch again. Uh, who's this? This is Miss Brooks. Uh, well, what'll they think of next? Now they got a doll answering a phone. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, tell me, sugar, what do you think the track conditions are at Narragansett, huh? Frankly, I haven't given it much thought. Uh, who, who's that you're talking to, Miss Brooks? It's Dutch, Mr. Conklin. <laughs> Please make it brief, Miss Brooks. Tell him we're busy. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, Dutch, but we're quite occupied at the moment. Occupied? Oh, look, now, don't give me no rush, Jack. Frenchie told me I should call whenever I feel like it. Oh. Mr. Conklin, Dutch says that Frenchie told him to call. (laughs) Dutch? Frenchie? Who are they? A couple of delegates we know from the United Nations. Just hang up, Miss Brooks. Hang up at once. Yes, Mr. Conklin. Bye, Dutch. Now, as I started to tell you, Mr. Stone, we've done wonders here at Madison. Firstly, by eliminating all vending machines, I've destroyed the impulse to deposit coins in slots of any kind. He's even discouraged use of the public telephone. (laughs) Naughty word. (laughs) The instinct to gamble must be crushed at the earliest opportunity. One of the reasons it's so difficult to track down this big boy mob is because of the unwitting protection afforded them by the uninformed. They operate in candy stores, skating rinks, even schools. Even schools? (laughs) Nice timing, Dutch. 
Hello? Look, I'm tired of playing games. How's the weather at Narragansett? Well, what do I know about the weather at Narragansett? <laughs> Just a moment. Narragansett's a big racetrack. Hand me that phone. Oh, no. <laughs> Hello, Dutch. The conditions at Narragansett are weather clear, track fast. Now, would you like to make a bet? A hatchet man should be a cinch on a fast track, and we got a load bet on him with us. I better lay off about uh, 600 across the board, huh? 600 on hatchet man. It's a bet. Ah, good, good. That's one thing about the big boy. He makes you pay through the nose, but he gives you the service, huh? Well, so long. So long. Well, Osgood, that was a very revealing phone call. Uh, now, now, just a minute, Mr. Stone. You know where I stand on gambling. Why, we've eliminated penny matching, bottle cap tossing... <laughs> and any minute, we're going to chop up the weighing machine. <laughs> come in, come in, whoever you are. Oh, pardon me, Mr. Conklin, but could I speak with Miss Brooks for just a moment? Uh, I suppose so, Boynton, but please be quick about it. Oh, yes, sir. Here, Miss Brooks, here's $20 toward the money you owe for the phone bill. Well, thanks, Mr. Boynton. Oh, don't thank me. Thank your fellow teachers. I didn't have time to reach them all, but everyone I asked to chipped in and said he knew it was a safe bet. Did you hear that, Mr. Conklin? The other teachers are all chipping in. Mr. Boynton could only get $20 now, but they all know it's a safe bet. <laughs> safe bet, eh? Miss Brooks, tell me, is this money for the hatchet man, too? Naturally, but I don't think that's a very flattering way to refer to Mr. Conklin. <laughs> Perhaps he'd like it better if I refer to him by his real name. Eh, big boy? <laughs> big boy? <laughs> Mr. Stone, there's been a frightful misunderstanding. Miss Brooks, tell Mr. Stone what this money is for. But, Mr. Conklin, you told me not to mention it. Well, mention it! Mention it! <laughs> <laughs> well, Mr. Stone, this money is for a phone bill that I neglected to pay. I would say your telephone service is functioning admirably. <laughs> Let me explain, Mr. Stone. Just today, I received a new phone number in answer to a request I made three days ago. Why did you want your number changed three days ago? Because he hasn't got a recording of Goodnight, Irene. <laughs> Goodnight, Irene. Good night. Come on, Mr. Boynton. <laughs> what's going on here? That's what I'd like to know. Why don't you come clean, big boy? <laughs> Will you please stop calling me by that name, Mr. Stone? The phone company happened to give me the former number of a bookmaker, and it was too late to have it changed before you got here. Balderdash! <laughs> you sent for a telephone repairman and had the phone disconnected. Yes, why didn't you send for a telephone repairman? I mean, he did send for a repairman, Mr. Stone, but I thought he was coming to disconnect the phone because I hadn't paid the bill, and I sent him away. Unpaid phone bills mixed up. You know what I think? I think you're all in this together. Mr. Stone, I can't say that I like your attitude. Horse yourself. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Brooks. Can you give me one shred of evidence to support this fantastic phone bill story? Well, sir, Excuse I... Excuse me, everybody, but the door was open, so I thought I'd just botch on in. <laughs> I've got the news you've been waiting for all day. Really, Stretch? What part of the school is on fire? <laughs> no, it's about the phone bill. I just found out my mother paid it. She paid it? Sure, here's the receipt. Well, I guess this answers your request for evidence, Mr. Stone. Here, take a look at this. Hmm... 
Just what does this receipt mean, Miss Brooks? Read it, you'll see. I already have. Now, suppose you read it. Certainly. Received from Madison High School, $30. Signed, the Consolidated Gas Company. (laughs) Now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, we finally convinced Mr. Stone that we weren't running a gambling syndicate at Madison High School. And when I got home, I sat down at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee and the afternoon papers. You look pretty worn out, Connie. Why don't you stretch out and take a nap? I will, Mrs. Davis, but first I've got to call Mr. Conklin right away. I just saw something in the paper I've got to tell him about. What is it, Connie? His $2 parlay on Harbor Song and Hatchet Man paid $32. This is Burns Smith reminding you to tune in next week to another Our Miss Brooks show brought to you by Luster Cream Shampoo, the soft, glamorous, caressable hair, and Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and help stop tooth decay. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, written by Al Lewis, with the music of Wilbur Hatt. Be sure to listen to Mr. and Mrs. North every Tuesday over the same network, and be with us again next week at the same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. Stay tuned now for Jack Benny. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, I hope that uh, that lightened your mood a little bit. That was R. Miss Brooks, as originally heard on CBS, back on the 15th of October in 1950. And the name of that episode was The Bookie. Chester's holding up a a, a couple more records. If you joined us late, we had a caller by the name of Grover Corners calling us from Troy, Michigan, And he was very depressed, very upset, and he said that it lifts his spirit when he hears sad songs. So we promised to play him some sad songs, and we played two of the saddest songs you're ever going to want to hear before our Miss Brooks, and Chester says we have some more to play now. So here are some more sad songs to try to make Grover Corners in Troy, Michigan feel better. See the tree, how big it's grown, but friend, it hasn't been too long, it wasn't big. I laughed at her and she got mad, the first day that she planted it was just a twig. Then the first snow came and she ran up to brush the snow away so it wouldn't die. Came running in, all excited, slipped and almost hurt herself, and I laughed till I cried. She was always young at heart, kind of dumb and kind of smart, and I loved her so. And I surprised her with a puppy Kept me up all Christmas Eve Two years ago 
And it would sure embarrass her when I came in from working late Cause I would know That she'd been sitting there and crying Over some sad and silly late, late show And honey, I miss you And I'm being To be with you If only I could She wrecked the car And she was sad And so afraid that I'd be mad But what the heck Though I pretended hard to be Guess you could say she saw through me And hugged my neck I came home unexpectedly and caught her crying needlessly in the middle of the day. And it was in the early spring when flowers bloom and robins sing, she went away. And honey, I miss you. And I'm being good. And I'd love to be with you If only I could One day while I was not at home While she was there and all alone The angels came Now all I have is memories of honey And I wake up nights and call her name an empty stage where honey lived and honey played and love grew up and a small cloud passes overhead and cries down on the flower bed that honey loved and see the tree how big it's grown but friend it hasn't been too long it wasn't big She got mad the first day that she planted it was just a twig. There's a blizzard coming on. How I'm wishing I was home. For my pony's lame and he can't hardly stand. Listen to that northern sigh If we don't get home, we'll die But it's only seven miles to Marianne It's only seven miles to Marianne You can bet we're on her mind For it's nearly supper time And I'll bet there's hot biscuits in the pan Lord, my hands feel like they're froze And there's a numbness in my toes But it's only five more miles to Marion 
It's only five more miles to Mary Ann That wind's howling and it seems Mighty like a woman's screams And we best be moving faster if we can Damn, just think about that barn With that hay so soft and warm For it's only three more miles to Marion It's only three more miles to Marion Dan, get up, you honorary cuss Or you'll be the death of us I'm so weary, but I'll help you if I can All right, Dan, perhaps it's best that we stop a while and rest. For it's still a hundred yards to Marianne. It's still a hundred yards to Marianne. Late that night, the storm was gone. And they found him there at dawn. He'd have made it, but he just couldn't leave old Dan. Yes, they found him there on the plains. His hands froze to the reins. He was just a hundred yards from Mary Ann. He was just a hundred yards from He died. He died, and and, and he was a hundred yards away from Marianne, from his wife. He died for for his horse. Man, I, I let's play Gunsmoke. I I can't take too much more of this sad stuff.
Oh yeah, that music makes you feel better, doesn't it? All of a sudden, we're transported back to 1875. It's Dodge City, Kansas. We're walking up Front Street with Marshal Matt Dillon. There's Kitty and Chester and Doc and the whole gang on Gunsmoke. Tonight, we're going back to an episode that first was broadcast in July of 1958. And it's entitled, Chester's Choice. City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke, starring William Conrad story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. You, you sure about this job? What's the matter? You scared? Hey, you know better than to ask me that. Just holding up a bank right in the middle of the day. I yes. told you, Loot, I know Dodge City. It's asleep on its feet when the sun gets high. Folks don't even rouse enough to swat flies. Come on, boss. Well, it's your game. So don't you worry. All we do is hang around like we was just trying to stay out of the sun till we wander into the bank about three o'clock. There won't be no trouble. You must be awful sure about the law there. We'll be out of town before that big marshal can wake up and get there. Well, I hope. Sit, Norris. Something in the bush down there. It's some animal, Lou. You got nerves like a woman. I'm going to look. Hey, you, you, you there. Don't you move. No. All right. Who you got, Luke? 
Somebody sneaking through the brush. What are you doing here, mister? Well, I, I, I just been fishing, all. It's Chester. Oh. Oh, Milk. You been here long? Oh, dang, I don't really know. I fell asleep. A body gets mighty drowsy fishing in the sun. Look to me, you've got mighty big ears. You hear us talking, Chester? I told you I've been to sleep. He's lying, Milk. He couldn't help hearing. He's been right under our feet the whole time. Mm-hmm. Lute put down the gun. Well, we let him go. We ain't got us a Chinaman's chance. We kill him, the whole of Ford County will be out looking for him. He works for Marshal Dillon, Lute. Oh. Well. Well, then, time up. Leave him here. Somebody find him sometime, maybe. Lute, it's the same thing. If he don't get back, the marshal will start looking. He might start looking just the wrong time. You can just bet he'll start looking. I'm supposed to be back there at the office at noon, and Mr. Dillon ain't want to just sit around well, and wait. Well, I still wait. say our best bet is just to kill him. Now, wait a minute. And then maybe we can use him. You're a pretty good friend of the marshal, ain't you? Mr. Dillon's my best friend, and I'm proud of it. Why? You see a lot of the folks he sees, don't you? Like the like the doc, for instance. That woman, uh, the one at the Long Branch. Well, I see Doc and Miss Kitty, of course I do. What are you getting at, anyway? Well, it just seems to me like maybe you wouldn't want to see nothing happen to him. To any fault of yours, that is. Uh, just a minute here. I... You wouldn't want somebody to take a shot at one of them while they was walking down the street, would you? Why, no. Mm. Of course, I wouldn't want to do it if I didn't have to. But you're the one who's going to make me decide if I have to. Now, you listen, Milk. I ain't going to have nothing to do with shooting Doc or Miss Kitty. Then you better do what I say. Well, what you I'm better to... see that the marshal's out of town this afternoon at 3 o'clock. A good long way out of town. Why, well, I can't do that. You'll do it. You'll do it or you'll have one or two dead friends. And I don't ever talk idle. Not about shooting, he don't. So it wouldn't be healthy for the marshal's friends if you was to tell them what you heard out here, you understand? Yes, sir. Reckon I do. All right. Go on now. Get your horse and head back to town. And you and the marshal had better be a long way off at 3 o'clock. You ain't no good, Bill Cole. You ain't no good at all. Then just you remember that. Now get Think he'll really do it? Get the marshal out? Sure he will. He's too scared. Anyway, he hadn't got enough sense not to. Sam, I gotta find Miss Kitty quick. Well, she's right over there, Chester, over at that table. Oh, thank you. Uh, Miss Kitty? Oh, sit down, Chester. Uh, uh, thank you. Something wrong, Chester? You look upset. Well, whatever would give you an idea like that? Well, I can't imagine. 
except that you come in snorting and all red in the face. I don't know why I should think anything was the matter. Well, I, I sure am glad you don't think so, Miss Kitty. <laughs> all right, Chester. What's on your mind? Well, I, I just got me a wonderful idea, that's all. And what's that? Well, see, I, I was thinking this would be a fine day for you and Mr. Dillon to take a ride out in the country. In the middle of summer? Well, yes, but it's real pretty out there, Miss Kitty. All them lilacs around. Oh, Chester, there hasn't been a spray of lilac out there since spring. Not for a couple of months. Oh. Well, I bet the castor beans is blooming. They're mighty pretty sight in castor beans. Oh, not beans. to me, they aren't. They're about as poor an excuse for a flower that I can think of. Well, Miss Kitty, what... Look, getting sunstroke isn't going to do me any good, Chester. Well, but now sunstroke Chester, ain't... I'm not going out in that sun this afternoon with Matt or anyone else. And you might as well stop talking about it. Oh, here comes Doc. You ask him. Uh, oh, hello, Kitty. Just hello, Doc. Hello, Doc. Uh, well, what are you two doing to pass the time of day? Why, Chester's trying to talk me into going out riding with Matt this afternoon. Oh, well, right. A pretty hot day for trips around the country, Chester. I just thought it might maybe do him some good to get away from town for a little oh, bit. Oh, you were just acting silly about it, Chester. Well, maybe I got a good reason for it. There's no good reason for sending folks out into the prairie sun. Yes, well, if you was as smart as you think you are, you'd go along, too. Oh, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> Don't worry, Kitty. I'll take Chester off your hands. <laughs> Come on, Chester. Come on, let's have a bite of food. It's getting toward noon. Yeah, maybe you'll feel better after you have something to eat, Chester. Miss Kitty, food ain't got <laughs> Come nothing. Come on, Chester. <laughs> Goodbye, Kitty. Goodbye, Doc. Some other time, Chester. Another time ain't the same thing. Well, <laughs> yeah, I sure didn't try. Yes, it seems to me you tried too hard. Doc, I thought you folks were supposed to be my friends. You ain't got no call to act so smart alecky and stubborn. You know, it sounds like you've got a touch of the sun yourself. Uh, where have you been this morning, anyway? Fishing. Fishing? I always thought that was supposed to calm a man down. What happened to you? Nothing. Hey, Doc. Doc, have you got somebody real sick out in the country? You, you driving out there this afternoon, maybe? Well, not that I know. Now, but it could happen. It seems some of the biggest belly aches come on the hottest days. Sure, they do not. Now, I expect that can be mighty worrying, can it? Well, what do you mean? All that driving by yourself. It seems the body should have some company. Oh, Chester, if you think I'm going to go back there and try to get Miss Kitty to go driving with me this oh, afternoon, no, you're... Oh, mine. Oh, Doc, no, you told me yourself it wouldn't be good for Miss Kitty. I ain't thinking about a thing like that. All right, then. I but... was thinking it might do Mr. Dillon some good to get off with you this afternoon. Oh, now, Chester, Well, he might could even help you, like... Lifting a sick person up or holding him down. Oh, Chester, you stop this nonsense right now. Just what is it that you've got on your mind? Nothing. You've got some reason for wanting Matt out of town, though, is that it? No, Doc, no, it ain't nothing like that. All right, let's hear no more about it. Well, come on in here. Come on, let's get some food. Yeah, no, no, I ain't got no time to eat, Doc. I'll see you later. Good, but wait, where are you going, Chess? Oh, my, that boy. What in the world's the matter with him? Uh, Mr. Dillon? Oh, hello, Chester. I see you're busy. Yeah, I got to get these forms filled out for today's mail. Uh, Mr. Dillon? Uh, 
Mr. Dillon, you been down to Reed's Creek lately? What? Uh, Reed's Creek. The, the fish sure are biting down there. It's only about an hour's ride. Uh-huh. And it sure would be a nice day for it. You could go down there and catch a mess of fish for dinner. Chester, what are you talking about? Reed's Creek. I, I, I just thought it'd be kind of nice if you used to go fishing this afternoon. Down to Reed's Creek there. Uh-huh. You could go. I thought you went fishing this morning. Yes, sir, I did. That's why I thought maybe you could well, go... Well, think with... again. The fish won't be biting in the middle of the day, will they? Oh, now, you you can't be sure, Mr. Dillon. I knew a fellow one time... Then why don't you get him to go fishing, huh? Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. Uh, Chester. Yes, sir? Why don't you light someplace? You're worse than a horse fly. Yes, sir. I hear they're bringing in some new stallions out to Lemon Bridges place there. New stallions out there. Mighty fine pieces of horse flesh to tell me some stallions. Make a nice little ride this afternoon to go out there and Chester. see them. Yes, sir. I'm not going fishing. I'm not going out to Lim Bridges' place. I'm not going any place but to Hayes City, and I'm late right now. What'd you say? I'm going to Hayes City, and that's all. Oh, Hayes? Now, do you think maybe you might stop talking just long enough to take these envelopes to the post office for me? I gotta get going. Yes, sir, I sure can, Mr. Dillon. Yes, sir, yeah, I sure can. Uh, Oh, uh, Mr. Dillon? Yes, what is it now? Mr. Dillon, I, I just want you to know, well, if anything was to come up while you're gone, I sure would do my best to take care of it. Yeah, sure. I, I don't want to worry you none. I'll, I'll handle things. Sure, Chester, I know, I know. <clears throat> hmm? I can I'll say goodbye. All right, Chester, goodbye. I did... Mr. Dillon, I'd... I'd Kind of like to shake your hand if it's all seen you. Chester, will you get on down to the post office with those letters, will you please? Huh? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, I'm going. Bye, Mr. Dillon. Say, Matt, can I see you for a minute? Ah, sure, Doc. Yeah, walk along with me to the stable. I'm on my way to Hayes City. Yes, that's what I wanted to see you about. Uh, Did Chester talk you into going there? Talk me? No, Doc, I got government business down there. Why? Well, he's been working at getting you out of town all day. Oh? Just had his mind set that you'd get out of town. Well, why? Well, I don't know, but, but he was a kitty about it before noon. He wanted her to get you to go for a ride in the country. <laughs> I bet she fixed that in a hurry. Yeah, she sure did. A summer afternoon's ride somehow didn't seem to appeal to her. And then Chester started to work on me. On you? Yes, he thought it'd be nice if you'd spend the afternoon riding around with me in my buggy. <laughs> Even Chester isn't that crazy. You no, know, but something sure eaten him. I just passed him in the alley behind the bank, and he's sure not himself. Now, what do you mean? And he's got two guns strapped on That's right. And he's acting like the life of everybody in town depended on him. 
So what do you think, Mary? Uh, I don't know, Doc. There's one thing, sure. What's that? I guess it really is important to Chester that I get out of town. Sick, Chester, you could scare a fella half to death sneaking into this bank through the back way like that. I got a reason. Well, now, if I didn't know you better, I'd think you'd come in here to rob us. You wearing two guns. Well, you ought to be glad I'm wearing them now. You listen to me, Alvin, and you won't get hurt if you do what I say. What are you talking about? I ain't got much time to do any explaining. I'm just telling you that this bank is about to be held up. Held up? I was talking to the fellas that's going to do the job. Well, why isn't the marshal here then? He had to ride out to Hayes City. You mean you knew the bank was going to be held up and you let the marshal ride out of town? I had to do it. Now, then I, look, I come to take care of things. Now, you do like I say. You go right on up front there like nothing was happening, and I'll carry you from back here. I sure you hope you know what you're doing. You don't need to worry none. I got you covered. And I got you covered. Now, drop them guns. Uh, you... Loot. Oh, wait, mister, now. You drop them. real smart to get the marshal out of town. I've seen him ride out. But you should have quit while you was ahead. Oh, I should have had more sense. I should have told him. Milt's out front waiting. You just stand easy till he gets in here, you hear? Because I got this gun right spang in your back. I tried to be so blame smart, doggone I should have known. That's out front. Milt! It's the floor, Chester. Mr. Dillon. You, you, you got it, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Only cause you jolted this gun hand. Where'd he get you, Chester? In the leg here. Huh? Right there. It, it, it ain't nothing. What about the other one? Milt. Well, he's dead. I caught him on his way in. Mr. Dillon. If I was you, I'd just send me packing. Oh? Yes, sir, I sure would. Oh, it ain't as though I didn't mean well and wasn't trying to work things right, like getting you out of town because they said they'd shoot Doc or Miss Kitty if if you was here. Oh, so that's it. Well, I figured you had a reason. Well, yeah, but I just ain't a thinker, Mr. Dillon. Now look what happens when you... when you... But you ain't out of town, are you? How come you ain't? Well, I... I heard that you were marching around wearing two guns. You did? Yeah, so I figured I'd better stick around if I didn't want you to take over my job. Oh, oh Mr. Dillon, I... <laughs> you just rest easy now. I'll go get Doc. <laughs>
Gunsmoke. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Featured in the cast were Parley Bear as Chester, Howard McNear as Doc, and Georgia Ellis as Kitty. George Walsh speaking. Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story on Gunsmoke. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. As originally broadcast on the 6th of July back in 1958, that was Chester's Choice on Gunsmoke. Some of the episodes we have of Gunsmoke from the later 50s came from Armed Services Radio, and they weren't as clear as some of the ones we had in the first years, but I've been playing 55, 56 54, 55, and 56 uh, for some time, and I I really need to work in some of these other shows that uh, came later, even though the quality of recording is not quite as good. But I am trying to select only the ones that uh, I I consider highly listenable. More gun smoke next time. Chester is holding up another sad song. All right, Chester, let's have it. She put him out Like the burning end of a midnight cigarette She broke his heart He spent his whole life trying to forget We watched him drink his pain away A little at a time But he never could get drunk enough To get her off his mind Until the night He put that bottle to his head And pulled the trigger Finally drank away her memory Life is short, but this time it was bigger Than the strength he had to get up off his knees We found him with his face down in the pillow With a note that said, I love her till I die Buried him beneath the willow The angel sang a whiskey lullaby La 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 The room is But nobody knew how much she blamed herself For years and years She tried to hide the whiskey on her breath She finally drank 
is the most depressing song I've ever heard. Chester, that... You have another one. <clears throat> one more, everybody. One One more. He said, I'll love you till I die. She told him you'll forget in time. As the years went slowly by She still prayed upon his mind He kept her picture on his wall Went half crazy now and then But he still loved her through it all Hoping she'd come back again Kept some letters by his bed Dated 1962 He had underlined in red Every single I love I went to see him just today Oh, but I didn't see no tears All dressed up to go away 
First time I'd seen him smiling you He stopped loving her today They placed a reef upon his door And soon they'll carry him away Stop loving her today You know, she came to see him one last time Oh, and we all wondered if she would And it kept running through my mind This time over her for good He stopped loving her today It placed a reef upon his door And soon they'll carry him away He stopped loving her today Enough. Enough already. I've got to pick up all the shows, all the records, everything, take them back in the vault, and call it a night. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Well, I certainly hope that Grover Corners in Troy, Michigan, is a much happier man. What's that, Chester? Chester says he called in and said that uh, he appreciated very much that he's feeling much better. Well, that's wonderful, because I feel like going out and hanging myself. My goodness, I didn't know there were so many depressants. Well, listen, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed our selections tonight. I hope we didn't bring you down too much with our uh, collection of sad songs, most of them country songs. But we'll be back in two weeks with a whole new lineup of shows, and we'll try to keep things a little more upbeat. In the meantime, this is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I'm so glad you met me.
glow I see Blue eyes cry in the rain When we kissed goodbye and part I knew we'd never meet again Love is like a dying ember And only memories remain And through the ages I'll remember Blue eyes crying in the rain 